Yeah, I saw this in the outline and I was like, damn, I have to answer that question. Um, maybe I should stop asking people. It's a hard question. So you you did the homework. I did. I did. <laughs> uh, give me a second here. I've never actually been interviewed on a podcast. I do a lot of interviews, but I've never answered questions like this. How does your medicine taste? <laughs> it is much harder, I will say. Welcome to Adelante, a podcast filled with inspiring stories of people embracing their uniqueness. I'm Alfonso Comino, your host. Our guest today is Joe Sweeney. Joe is the creator and host of the Just Raised podcast, where he talks to early stage funders across sectors like fintech, climate tech, consumer, and crypto. Joe has had some fantastic founders on the show, like Phil Libin, founder of Evernota, mm-hmm. Josh Wolf from Lux Capital, and Delian Asparajo from Founders Fund and Barda, just to name a few. Prior to the show, he was a vice president at Silicon Valley Bank, working with early stage founders in Boston. In this conversation, Joe talks about his background in bioengineering, how he pivoted to banking, and then how he started monetizing the creator economy by learning in public and exploring topics such as space exploration in the Just Raised podcast. Towards the end, Joe raised his time working for one of the most acclaimed podcast hosts ever. Keep listening to find out who that is. Enjoy this conversation with Joe Sweeney. Thank you, Joe, for joining us here in Adelante. We're pumped to can you as one of our guests. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. It's good to be here. Our show, Adelante, means to move forward in Spanish. And it's about helping people find inspiration and move ahead. We do that mainly in two ways. We have guests on the show narrating inspiring personal stories. And other times we share actionable insights about topics such as resilience and innovation. I am excited to have you on the podcast today, Joe. From what I know about you, I can predict that this conversation will be filled with inspiring takeaways for everyone. You have your own personal story with plenty of career twists that we will cover later on. And on top of that, you have all the stories from your podcast, the Just Raised podcast, where you cover stories of entrepreneurs and founders. So talk about innovation and resilience. An excellent place to start this conversation would be for you to tell us a bit more about yourself and how you have managed to move your career from bioengineering to banking in the prestigious Silicon Valley Bank to now hosting your own podcast. Yeah, I've done a couple different things, but always knew that I wanted to work with startups. And initially, I went to school for biomedical engineering, was planning to work with life sciences, biotech startups. But over time, that evolved because most of the growth and the most open ecosystem was on the tech side. And bio has also been exploding. I think often about how if I had graduated a couple of years later, I'd probably be working on something COVID related right now and be truly in the biotech side. But I always wanted to work with startups and found that you really need a PhD or at least a master's if you're going to go on to the bio side. And even then, the typical path is go work at a company like a Merck or a Pfizer, one of these big drug companies for the first 10 years of your career, do a postdoc, and then potentially start a company after that based on the things you did at those big companies. That always struck me as it took way too long. If I had done a PhD, I'd still be doing it. And one of the things I've realized lately is this idea of just value creation, value capture. When you're starting your career, people don't tell you that 
it's all about jobs to be done. This company is trying to expand. They're trying to sell more. They need to do marketing to do that. They need, you know, accountants to manage the books. And it doesn't really matter where you came from. It only matters that you can solve some of their problems so they can continue to grow, sell to more customers, generate more revenue. And then in podcasting, it's interesting because that's one of the purest forms of you create a thing. And then advertisers pay you because it's valuable to them, because you have a valuable audience. And it struck me that when I started doing this after I left SVB, that you can just make something. It doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be anything. And if people are excited to part with their dollars in exchange for it, that's all you really need to do. And that changes the whole dynamic for me from thinking about where you're going to work and who you're going to work for to this dynamic of like, what can you do that's valuable and what can you get paid for it? I particularly liked your last take on the creator economy. What can you do that is valuable and what can you make out of it? You briefly touched on your bioengineering studies and with life sciences being all the talk for the last two years due to COVID, obviously. How would you explain to someone with limited knowledge on the field, what is bioengineering? It's an interesting field, biomedical engineering. It's a lot of life sciences. So on the cellular level through to tissues and muscles and the human body, but also mechanical. So focuses on the actual creation of devices from wheelchairs to pacemakers and is really focused on solving health problems through a wide range of different solutions, whether it be cellular therapies, gene therapies, drug creation, or something more mechanical like robots for surgery. That's what I like about it is it spans a whole bunch of different fields. So I had semesters where I was doing human cadaver dissections and working on anatomy, but also doing biofluid mechanics, which is mostly math, and also bio electronics. So that was things like, okay, here's a resistor and a pacemaker and a tiny little chip. By the end of the class, we had a lab that took six hours where we had to take a bunch of resistors and build a pacemaker, which is very challenging. But uh, I can build like simple electronics, but also do bacterial cultures. So that's the general gist of biomedical engineering it was a great base for talking to founders in all sorts of different fields. I must admit, I don't get to talk to people dissecting human cadavers at school very often. After studying bioengineering, you went on to work for the Silicon Valley Bank. And I am wondering, what was your age to pivot your career so drastically? Which levels did you pull? Was it the math you attained from that mentioned biofluid mechanics class? I'm only asking because it doesn't sound like the most common way to get into banking. Uh, no, it's a pretty terrible path in a lot of ways. But what I could do is talk to founders and I had an engineering background. So after school, moved up to Boston, worked at a consulting firm, Lux Research, which was a spin out of Lux Capital from a long time ago. Josh Wolf founded it the year before I was born, but worked there for a year, really diving into different companies and their technologies specifically, because it was a very tech focused place. And then at Silicon Valley Bank, I remember interviewing and being confused because, you know, I didn't think I was going to get the job because it was a bank and I had never taken a business class. But they needed people able to talk to founders in Boston, which means a huge number of engineers out of MIT and Harvard and a bunch of the other schools. 
and I could do that. So they hired me and that was a great opportunity for me because I got to learn all about banking, which really is the fundamentals of capitalism, everything from how loans work to how money and capital is actually generated to also working with Silicon Valley Bank and discovering their huge web of contacts in Silicon Valley. They give me a really strong understanding of the environment from a perspective that no one else really gets because no one else can chat with people about different VCs returns with the people who have their bank accounts and know what their returns actually look like. I think you're making it sound like getting that job was easier than it probably was. And it sounds like working at Silicon Valley Bank was a great experience given the financial and banking knowledge you got out of it, as well as the exposure to the startups in Boston. And after the banking life for a while, you launch your current podcast where you cover the in and outs of young companies, especially those that have just raised VC, venture capital investment. I don't want to leave anyone behind. So could you set the tone here and start describing what raising venture capital means? That's a good question. Startup companies need capital for all sorts of things. If they want to hire anyone, build a product, have branding done, they need capital. So they go to venture capitalists who have a large pool of money that they raised, a fund, and then they deploy that fund into different startups in exchange for equity. So a VC might give you $5 million in exchange for 20% of your company, valuing the company at $25 million post. That's generally what uh, VC is. And I always found it really interesting because it was the people deploying the money into these companies and they're fueling the startup ecosystem. And you'll hear often that the VC startup ecosystem in the US is the most dynamic part of the economy. And that's probably true. It's really interesting because it's extremely experimental, uh, allows founders to work on projects, fail, and then come back and start another project and raise just as much money. And yeah, I was really interested in talking to founders about the raise, but also on the podcast, we talked to founders who just raised venture capital. It's also a really good way to be able to ask founders hard questions and not really be too worried about what I'm asking them because they just raised $60 million. So if I ask them hard questions, they already convinced a lot of people. And it's also been interesting to hear founders talk through how they actually put together the rounds and how those get engineered, which is always interesting to see some of the inside baseball. And clearly you're doing something right. Your show is now listed in the top 100 tech shows by Apple. So congratulations for that, Joe. But let's rewind a little bit here. What was the origin story for you starting this podcast? Your current success started somewhere. So using your recent words, can you give us the inside baseball story of the early innings of your own show? Yeah, so it was the middle of the pandemic last summer, uh, a little over a year ago now. Wow. And I was on an acquired Zoom call that they started doing with their community. Me and you were actually both on one yesterday. And I brought up the idea that there should be an acquired style podcast, which is a podcast that covers big businesses, their whole origin story, and then also does a really interesting financial analysis of both the technology trends and their most recent public reports. But I mentioned there should be an acquired for early stage companies because while Berkshire Hathaway is a fantastic 
several set of episodes on the acquired show i'm sure warren buffett and charlie don't notice that acquired is doing it whereas when they focus on early stage companies that audience that they bring can be hugely valuable for these founders who are trying to hire who are trying to bring on customers who are trying to raise more capital and david actually reached out to me cold one of the hosts and uh emailed me and said hey that was a great idea you should do it let's chat about it and given it was the middle of the pandemic and he's my favorite podcast host i started the show and I did about 10 episodes. I was pretty shocked by the quality of founders that we were able to bring on. Reaching out cold without a show, I got most of the founders I reached out to said yes, which was surprising. But it just shows you that founders really do need press for all of these things. And especially early stage founders, they're happy to jump on a show. If they get to trade an hour of their time for the potential to hire somebody new, land a new customer, things like that, all press is good press, I think. Yeah, obviously, it's a good trade-off for people who need that spotlight, as you mentioned. And obviously, Warren Buffett might not notice another, was it nine hours in total coverage of Berkshire? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was something like that. <laughs> so how do you manage, other than maybe cold emailing was the only answer, but you have a really wonderful lineup of guests and probably the first 10 were 100 times harder than the last 10. So how do you manage to get such a great lineup of guests in your podcast? Asking for a friend, of course. <laughs> the first few that I had on were all cold emails. And I was just shocked by how many positive responses I got. So I actually still use cold emailing as one of the major ways I reach out to founders just because it allows me to act faster. I also do warm intros. Now I go through VCs that I know really often. I'll go through other founders I've had on the show um, and I'll go through Silicon Valley Bank. They've been great in being able to connect me to some of their biggest clients. So all of those are super useful. The thing about cold emailing is there's no downside. If you send somebody an email, it could be Elon Musk. I mean, your email probably won't actually be read by Elon Musk, but it could be the CEO of a pretty big company that you look up to. If they don't answer, they don't answer. They just delete it or it never gets that because their EA deletes it and you don't lose anything. But if they do answer, that's a huge win. I actually love the cold email method. A lot of it is just reaching out all the time. The more guests you want to have on, the more you have to just put into the legwork of reaching out and connecting with people. It's a very asymmetrical situation because there is no downside for a cold email, but the upside could be tremendous. Exactly. So one of the things I noticed and I listened to quite a few of your episodes is that while all of them have something in common, is that, well, mostly are early firm companies, although sometimes you do have some VCs and angels in the show, but let's say most of them are about companies that just raise capital and they're very young. One of the things that shocks me is that they all cover extremely different topics and they require a wide range of knowledge from your side. Just to name a few, recently you talked to people in firms making flying cars, what is called EVTOLs, right? Uh, DeFi and fintech companies, also crypto firms working on Web3 and, and one of your classic companies working on the space exploration. So my question to you is, what is the preparation required from your side before recording an episode so you can ask insightful questions, but also have really good follow-ups when somebody with so many credentials answers you back? Well, I'll tell you, the nice thing is I don't have to do most of the talking. Uh, the guests do that. So that helps a lot. But beyond that, 
the engineering background definitely comes in handy there. So a lot of the companies you mentioned are in deep tech, frontier tech, you know, not pure software, more in hard science fields, I guess. I was going to say science fiction brought to reality type companies, which is what I love to talk about. But for all of those, a strong background in physics, biology, electronics are really helpful. So for the eVTOL episode, for instance, a lot of that was just focused on electric cars and also electric motors and the difference between electric engines and combustion engines. For one of the companies I'm talking to coming up, it's mostly about genetics. And having a base in all of those different fields is super useful. But mostly it's about asking good questions. And uh, again, that's why it's nice that the guests do most of the talking. Yeah, and I heard you just mentioned sci-fi or science fiction, which I know you're a fan, something that you mentioned recently. Did that play a role for your thirst on studying new firms, especially in the technology sector and the space area? Yeah, absolutely. So that's mostly why I went for biomedical engineering, really, I think, is because the biotech side, what we could potentially do with synthetic biology really is fascinating to me. Synthetic biology is the focus on using biology and all of the tools of life to make things. So one of the biggest companies in the space right now is Ginkgo Bioworks, and they have this amazing slide deck in their presentations that I've seen the founder do a few times when I was in Boston, where he shows a picture of a desk and there's a calculator, an iPhone, and a plant on the desk. And they ask, what's the most complicated device here? And it's obviously the plant. The plant is more complicated than anything else. And the whole point is to make you think a little bit differently about what is a device and what can be used for just production. And they talk about being able to, instead of cutting down a tree to make a desk, they instead grow a plant and do all these different types of things that the biology of life can potentially create for us. The challenge is that even Ginkgo Bioworks, one of the best funded companies in the space, doesn't really have any products yet. And this gets back to why I left the bio and life sciences field in general. It's not there yet. It just is really hard to make cells do things. And while you can get bacteria to produce a couple different molecules, you're not going to be making like Iron Man suits and Captain America super soldier serum. So I love sci-fi because directly back into what gets created. The founders of Google Maps talk about they weren't creating maps. You go and look back at Snow Crash and they have a device, which is essentially an orb that you can zoom in at any point and go all the way down to person level. And the founders of Google Maps talk about how they weren't creating a product that happened to look like that device from Snow Crash. They were trying to create that device from Snow Crash. They were like, let's build that UX and just do that. And they did. And that's exactly what Google Maps does today. And it's pretty wild. So I think sci-fi is super valuable. It paints a lot of interesting pictures of what the future could be like and technologies that aren't quite here yet, but might be foreseeable in the near future. And for that reason, I love the space. And it's really interesting when you're evaluating companies and technology sets today as well. Yeah. And obviously, Snow Crash is a, a well-commented book these days with the metaverse and everything going on. And I believe it was written on the 90s by Neil Stevenson. I read it not that long ago, once again, 
Yeah, sci-fi is fascinating. Help us to imagine a world that doesn't exist today, but give us something to create, I guess. So I think that's why it's so beautiful to read. I'd also say one of the things that makes sci-fi great is it often incorporates a lot of philosophy, the good ones do. And their idea is like, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and there's a book called To Like the Lightning. And in the book, the author, who's a professor of ideas at University of Chicago, she talks about this idea of digital nations. So physical nations have fallen out of favor, I guess. And instead, everyone has different communities that they can opt into via the internet and opt out of whenever they want. So they can join or leave. And then, you know, those nations tax them independently. And this is the same thing as Balaji's idea of cloud cities and things that a lot of the crypto people are working on. And it's interesting that it's not just technology, it's even organization. It's all sorts of things that you can predict if you look at the technology landscape today that I never would have occurred to me. But I remember reading that book probably four or five years ago. And now that idea of these digital nations is coming into fashion in a big way in the crypto community. And it's wild to have thought about that. Balaji definitely speaks to that a lot. And obviously love to listen to him in the podcast and all the different areas where he talk. And one of the main things that he talk about is a new digital country where only digital items get confiscated or taxated or I don't know what Digital countries are definitely a great idea. Mm -hmm. So you told us how you funded the podcast and some stories that you had in between. You mentioned some interesting companies like Jinko Bioworks and what you learned from them. One of the things that it brings me to mind is what have you learned the most since starting the podcast and since doing this kind of learning in public exercise that you do every day, right? So what is the number one thing that you will highlight as the learning you take away since you started podcasting? That's a hard question. One of the things I think about a lot is founders, and it still blows me away that second-time founders, people who've done it before, they're just so much better. It's so much easier for them than first-time founders. And that's something that I'm always surprised by when I talk to these founders who have started really successful companies before and are working on it again, is that when you talk to an early-stage founder, it's often kind of chaos. Everything is on fire. There are new challenges every day. You're both juggling a ton of different things. And the founders that have done it before are able to just ratchet down the intensity by a huge amount. And they have a playbook, they lay it out, and they follow it, assuming they have a product that has product market fit that people are excited to buy, that they know how to build on and execute. Not something I learned, but something just makes you appreciate again that starting is really the first place because you don't get to be a second time founder until you've done it a few times. So whether it be starting a podcast in a very small way or in a bigger way, starting companies, just actually going out and doing things, having an action bias is hugely important. First time founder or second time, was there someone out of the 100 plus people you interview that despite all your legwork that you do in advance, you were completely blown away by their knowledge of wisdom, whether it's in their field or whether it's about company building or because of the work they did, fundraising, anything. But somebody that comes to mind or a few people, if you want, that really surprised you on what they have excelled at. Yeah, as far as second time founders, Phil Libman and Doug Ludlow, Phil Libman started Evernote and raised, I think, like 400 or $600 million for that company. And then I talked to him right after he raised $3 million for mm -hmm, his new video. 
app that has since in the past year raised a hundred million. And talking to him, he's just a great person to talk to about design, about science fiction, about all things company related. And Doug is the same way. Also came from Google and he started companies before and listening to him talk is just a lot of fun because he has this vision, but he's also very humble about how he does it. And then Josh Wolf is always mind blowing, but I kind of knew that when I went in that that's what Josh was going to be like. I think probably the most memorable one was having Delian Asparohov on the show. He's one of the founders of Varda and a investor at Founders Fund. And he actually pitched Varda to the team at Founders Fund to have them incubate it. And talking to him about space, he talks like a mile a minute, twice as fast as any other guest I've ever had on the show. Everything he says is just so dense with information about space, which is wild because you hear me talk and I'm talking right now, but definitely not dense with information. So it's awesome to talk to people about things they love who have a really incredible just focus on a specific topic like that. Yeah, those are great episodes, especially I enjoy the one with Phil Levine. It's a really good one. Anything that you think that is in common between people that raise venture capital and what have they done successfully? Or what are their playbooks that you will say that most of those founders or their companies share in common in order to raise around? And obviously this is not a financial podcast, but if there is any learning for anybody out there about successful metrics or anything that is helpful, what would you highlight? They all make something people love. That's something that I heard Mark Andreessen say when he was interviewed recently. Someone had asked, if I'm a founder and I want to connect with you, how can I get to Andreessen Horowitz? And he said, well, don't worry about us. Worry about making a product that people love and are really excited about so much and we'll find you. And he's right. The challenge with venture capital is you have to need capital to start building the product, to make your early hires, to really just get any sort of proof points that this is going to work. And you can just go out with an idea and get more capital if you're like Phil Libin. That's what he did for mm-hmm. He just went to Sequoia and was like, I need $3 million. And they said yes, because he had started Evernote. But if you're not, you really just have to understand the space well enough. So either be a product builder or have a team that has product builders on it and really understand the sector you're going into. And you have to prove that this is going to work and you can't prove it all the way, but the more proof you can show, the more the risk comes down and you just want to continually show risk coming down. Another thing Mark Andreessen talks about is killing risk. So just going along as a founder and saying, what's the biggest existential risk that could kill my business and then go crush that. So yeah, with venture capital, it's really about having a great product. If you have a great product and you're growing like 500% a year, then yeah, VCs are going to be really excited to own a piece of that business. I'm not from the US, obviously. One of the things I always admire about people in the US, uh, such as yourself, is that passion that you all shared in common about starting something new and be brave about the unknown and understanding that if it doesn't work the first time, that was perhaps a really good stepping stone for the second time that you might succeed or the third time, right? And I think the American culture really values that and obviously gets a lot of out of that. And you mentioned second time funders will be very happy to talk about the first instance when it didn't work out. 
And one of the differences that happen when you talk to people that is usually outside the U.S., and obviously this is a bit generalizing, but most people outside the U.S. will be a little bit resistant about seeing that type of failure as something to be proud of, or perhaps they will be resistant to even get started. So what would be your thoughts about talking to these incredibly successful people, even though they haven't always been successful? If somebody came to you and said, I'm scared to get started, and you have so many stories and so many people that perhaps at the first time were successful, but perhaps at the third time were successful, what are some of the things that they did or why they did it that lead them to success? Yeah, I think this is one of the best parts about the tech ecosystem in general is that you can go try something and fail. And unlike other environments that might be more hostile, you can go take a bunch of VC money, set it on fire, have the company not go well at all, and then come back and be like, well, I raised this bunch of money at a different company. And if you have a new idea, you can totally raise more money, which is pretty wild that those types of things don't follow you. They're almost seen as a badge of pride. For a lot of people, it's a focus on a single thing. So one example I'll give is the founder of Bloomscape. I love this story. He started his company, Bloomscape, three times. <laughs> and it wasn't always called Bloomscape, but it was always a plant delivery company. And it's because his parents and their parents before them were four generations into uh, a line of everyone being plant cultivators. And he loves plants and he wanted to start an indoor plant business and he started it and then he started it again. And it didn't quite work. And then the third time he started it, he really had gotten to understood this D2C branding type environment, direct to consumer businesses. So selling on Instagram, having the branding right, doing everything from that lens. And he was able to raise a bunch of money and make it work that time. But really, it was that uh, make a plant selling business. So that's one thing. David on the Acquired podcast, he calls this the hedgehog theory in that the fox is smart. They do all different types of things. They're always exploring and curious. The hedgehog never looks up. They always just look down and are focused on the thing they're focused on. And they just work on that problem over and over and over again until they make it work. So that type of focus. I also think a lot of times people, on the other hand, are open to just switching industries and topics and keep moving forward if things don't work. So you'll see people at tech who, especially on the engineering side, because you're just writing code, but also marketing, all sorts of things will switch from new age food brand to uh, consumer product to enterprise SaaS to fintech. And now everyone's moving into crypto. That flexibility is really helpful. Yeah, I really like that answer. And I think another good example of resilience in a company will be Webflow. The founder, which is called Vlad, also founded the company three times with different founders, uh, different terms. And today he runs a very successful company. I think one of the most encouraging things about that is whenever you hear these stories, it's almost always people working in obscurity for years, not like not like months, not a couple of weeks, but for years of just no one really caring about what they're doing. And then suddenly they're extremely successful. And this happens all the time. Everyone talks about how it's the overnight success that was actually a 10-year success. And I think that's really encouraging because it shows that you can be working on something for a long time 
and just be chugging away, laying the groundwork, and then suddenly have it working in obscurity and not having people know who you are or care is not a bad thing. That's actually how everybody works from the biggest tech companies to the smallest successes. Yeah. And I guess a lot of the companies you get to talk to, if they just raise capital from somebody uh, very famous, let's say Andreessen, they obviously come out of the curiosity at that time, but that might be for a short period of time. It seems to be like every company today is an overnight success until you look under the hood. Yeah, that's kind of the point of the podcast, my podcast. <laughs> so Joe, if you sat down with somebody today and they came to you and asked you, what is your favorite moment since you started podcasting? What is something that easily comes to your mind? I think it probably have to be one of bunch of moments scattered throughout the series on the space industry. That was a lot of fun doing that series because I had decided to do series because I had left Silicon Valley Bank and realized I should probably pick this podcast back up again. One, because I had a couple marketing people who reached out and asked me if I could have their founders on the show. So, of course, I said yes. But two, because everyone I talked to have just raised tens of millions of dollars and is actively hiring. I went back to Silicon Valley Bank and suggested that we do a sponsorship and quickly realized that I could match my old salary as a podcaster through a couple sponsorships. So that's why I focused on space and fintech. But on the space side, that was pretty wild because when I started, I knew nothing about the space industry. I have a general idea of what rockets do, and I've listened to the acquired episode on SpaceX, but not a lot more than that. And then the first episode I did on that was where I talked to Delhi and and like I said, he just moves a mile a minute and is both an investor and actually building Varda, a company that was doing manufacturing in satellites in orbit, zero G manufacturing. And after that, I talked to another eight companies in the space. And that was just wild because I, over time, talked to all of these different companies that were building different pieces from Rocket Lab the founder there. He's an aerospace engineer in New Zealand who built model rockets as a kid and just kept doing it. And now they're the only company other than SpaceX that's actually launched a rocket that's delivered anything into orbit, like a satellite or anything like that. And there are all these other rocket companies, but none of them managed to make it out into space, except for Blue Origin just did with people, of course. But Blue Origin still hasn't delivered a single satellite into space. And I got to talk to him about rockets. And then I talked to the founder of Spire, which is one of the biggest satellite constellations that looks down and picks up radio signals for everything on Earth. And you can do things if you're in the shipping industry, for instance, you can get Spire software and it will tell you where all your competitor ships are. And that's just pretty wild. Like the fact that they have a satellite that goes over every piece of the earth every like 12 minutes or so. And yet they're a pretty small, pretty early stage company. They're just able to build these satellites that are like the size of a bread box because computing obviously has gotten a lot better since the 1960s when satellites were the size of a bus. And really just working through that stack from other investors like Tess Hatch at Bessemer to uh, founders of some of these new age use cases like space tugs. I talked to this amazing company, Atomos, where the founder is a German aerospace engineer who left the European Space Agency because they really weren't moving fast enough or in the direction she liked. So she decided to start a space tug company, literally 
AI controlled drones like tow trucks that will be in space, live in orbit and go around and pull satellites into different orbits so that your satellite company can rearrange where your satellites are after they get dropped off. And look at the launch market, the big players like Rocket Lab versus smaller players that are looking to do smaller distributed launch or the big players like SpaceX versus the smaller players that are looking to do smaller rockets with distributed launches more frequently in other parts of the Earth. Um, so it's just really fr- fascinating and walking through that whole stack. Yeah, my favorite moments were probably talking to people across that journey. And the last one I talked to actually was. Rob Meyerson, and he was the president of Blue Origin, hired by Jeff Bezos from the year 2000 to 2018. So he spent years working on Blue Origin's rockets and listening to him talk about the future of the space industry. So pretty much every project that is currently ongoing, all the contracts that NASA has out, he talks about both manned bases on the moon, about how NASA has already given out contracts to start building lunar bases, so an international space station that orbits the moon. He talks about the shipping quarters between the moon and Earth and how the ISS, the International Space Station, is actually going to be offloaded or is actually going to be shutting down. And currently the proposal is NASA has given some contracts to another company that's building a private space station on top of it. So really just talking about all of that and some of the big ideas like manufacturing in space, the idea of actually getting some of our resources from space one day, uh, space tourism, all of these things I think are really fascinating. And the idea that it's just a commercial sphere more than discovery. It's no longer the mission to discover space. It's now about how can we actually commercialize it in a way that will make it accessible, but also valuable for people down here on Earth. So I don't know what the specific moment is there, but there were a lot in that that I just found fascinating because now I've talked to half the founders in the space industry. And when I started, didn't know anything about space. I had a feeling your answer would be along the space thing, probably because of your love for sci-fi or because you have done so many on that topic. But what I didn't expect is you telling me that you were not versatile on space knowledge before the podcast. Yeah. The impression I got as a listener is that you somehow mastered it long time ago uh, by reading or by following these companies. And it comes across as you are incredibly knowledgeable about the space. Obviously, I'm not a space expert, but you definitely sound as one. Well, that's really the magic of the podcast, right? I mean, if you listen to them, you know everything I know because everyone I've talked to, I recorded the conversations. And that's something Deli had said is he was like, there aren't that many people in space. And he said on the show, people always ask me, how do you learn so much about the space industry? And he's like, you just talk to the founders. And I had a vehicle to talk to founders. So yeah, it is pretty amazing how much you can pick up just by talking to key people in the space who are super knowledgeable. But I just started by being really curious and asking daily questions like, so you're building a factory in space. Like, what is that? How does that work? And going from there. One time I read that if you read five books about a specific vertical or area, you will be within the top 1% of the population ever born to have knowledge on that specific knowledge set that you're reading. So I guess what you're doing instead of reading books, you're doing interviews with these people and that probably puts you way ahead of the 1%. Maybe you're on the top 0.1 percentile of space knowledge in the world today and people ever born. 
Well, what's cool about that, not to say that I'm in the one percentile, I'm not sure about that, but a lot of these things like, you know, the new space industry, there are no books because the books are about NASA. They're about the shuttle program. There are no books about the founders who are building the first new space tugs in space or zero gravity manufacturing. I mean, maybe there are a couple, but they're creating this knowledge and this space as we talk to them. And that's one of the amazing things about being in tech in general, right? Is like, you can't read a book about NFTs and the NFT art boom. Like it just, it wasn't a thing six months ago. So that's probably my favorite part about doing the show is you get to explore the frontiers of startups, technology, uh, where these businesses are going. And that's really interesting. I don't know what that will evolve into, but yeah, unlocking that knowledge, it's really the only way to do it. Yeah, you have done a, a great job with the space collection, so well done for that. And since the cat is out of the bag, I really don't know how far the cat went, but it's clearly out. You have recently mentioned that the Just Race podcast has been acquired by the Work Media Group. What does a podcast acquisition mean and what does it look like? Yeah, I can't talk about this too much yet, but um, yeah, she'll get acquired. So after I left Silicon Valley Bank, started doing it, like I said, did the series on space and fintech and um, sponsorships were surprisingly lucrative. So I figured I'd do it for a few months, see where it went and had someone reach out to me saying that they're starting a new media business and wanted to hire me as their first creator. And yeah, it's pretty wild. This now makes me a professional podcaster comparable to being at Silicon Valley Bank, but now just focused on content and podcasting. And that's um, really interesting because I've never been much of a content creator before the podcast, you know, didn't have much in the way of social media, wasn't very focused on or didn't really care much about any of those things. It's been interesting for me to explore the podcast, like breaking down the space industry, but also building the audience, all the other pieces that go into obviously building a good show. And then they have the company that will be doing all sorts of really interesting things. Company's called Workweek. Can't talk about it that much yet, but there will be a lot more news on that coming soon. You always ask the same closing question to all your guests, which is, what is your long-term vision for your company? So my question to you this time is, what is your long-term vision for your podcast? Yeah, so my vision for the podcast, I think the most magical part about it is like we were talking about unlocking that hidden knowledge that just you can't get from anywhere else. That's one of the things I love about the Invest Like the Best podcast. Uh, actually, between doing the initial 10 episodes and then while I was at Silicon Valley Bank before I left and picked up the show again, ultimately full-time. I edited for Patrick O'Shaughnessy at the Invest Like the Best podcast for about six months or so. And that was really interesting because Patrick talks to the best of the best, whether it be investors in the public and private markets. We just had Mark Andreessen on the show, whether it be founders in all of these different spaces. He talks to public market founders. He talks to early stage startups. And all of the people he has on are just incredibly high quality. And he talks about this idea of unlocking knowledge that you just can't get from books. Like He is a hedge fund manager and a professional investor, and he's recording his conversations and open sourcing them in a way that's just really, I mean, was usually beneficial for me. When I started at Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and even at Lux Research, I started listening to the Acquired podcast and the Invest Like the Best podcast. And both of them are 
pretty much my education in startups, at least half. The other half was talking to startups and VCs every day at Silicon Valley Bank and Lux before that to a smaller degree. But those types of things are huge. So when I think about where I want to take my podcast, a lot of it is finding new ways to unlock knowledge and then also different ways to distribute it. Ultimately, like I said at the beginning when I was talking about pitching Ben and David that there should be an acquired for early stage companies because they need all these help. I think ultimately it would be amazing to build an audience that's large and engaged and interested in all of these early stage tech companies, but then also have all of the services incorporated that help with whether it be hiring, connecting them to potential customers through the audience, helping them raise, whether that be investing in them directly through a fund that I have or connecting them to the network of investors that I've had on the show in the past. Really all these things about helping founders, building a better suite for founders, because really this is marketing for them. And there's a lot of pretty low hanging fruit as far as ways that we could both generate revenue for the show, had value for our listeners who might want to actually work with these companies or engage with them in different ways as a customer, as an employee. And then also for the founders, it could essentially be a pitch where come on this show and it will be a podcast. It will be syndicated over YouTube and TikTok videos. Other creators will comment on it. We have a job board. We have all different sorts of things. And that's near-term stuff. But I think long-term, it would be interesting to continue to build out both a really interesting library of founders and their products, but then also a whole suite of different services for founders in a way that's beneficial, uh, generates a lot of value for them. So I don't know. We'll see. That's kind of some of the stuff I have top of mind at the moment. I was absolutely shocked to hear you work for Patrick O'Shaughnessy for six months. Obviously, his podcast is the gold standard for all of us. Yep. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think we should just do a full show about how you got that and your experience working with him. But because of the time, I'm going to restrain myself to one single question. Is Patrick going to come in the Just Race podcast himself? Is this going to come full circle? Uh, uh, maybe one day. Yeah, he is pretty exceptional, fantastic interviewer. One of the things that blew me away was... He doesn't write questions, but when you go and you look at the Descript, when you actually look at the file, there's no extraneous stuff that you cut from his questions. He has these super well-crafted, precise, poignant questions, but he doesn't entirely off the cuff about all different types of business topics. And he has a general idea of different things he wants to ask about, but his questions are just fantastic. He talks about how important it is to ask good questions great show. I recommend everyone who hasn't listened to both Invest Like the Best and Acquired, go check it out because, I mean, it's where I learned everything I know about startups and venture capital. Yeah, absolutely. I second that. They're both the gold standard and really great your story with Patrick. I hope he comes in your podcast. So, Joe, other than listening to the Just Race podcast, and please, listeners, leave a nice review and rating for Joe, especially on Apple, because it's very helpful for all of us. What is your preferred way for people to contact you if they want to reach out directly? Yeah, Twitter is probably best. My Twitter is at Joey Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-Y. And uh, yeah, I tweet about early stage companies, guests on the show, new episodes, all things like that. So imitating the one and only Patrick O'Shaughnessy, I asked the same closing question to all my guests, and that is, 
what are you most excited about the future? I'm really excited to keep talking to founders. I'm excited to dive into some of the spaces that I'm looking at right now. I'm really excited to see some of these things come to fruition. I just talked to an EVTOL electric vertical takeoff and landing company and <laughs> was pretty shocked. I came in skeptical, but was pretty shocked by how close the technology is. And I'm excited to see electric flying cars flying around New York City sometime in the next 10, 15 years. I just talked to a company that is using GPT-3 and natural language processing to generate writing. And the idea is that if you're a writer, you start writing and then you click a button and it generates more writing for you. And there's all sorts of features from like create a twist, to generate new characters, to take a bunch of bullets and turn it into an essay. And I think that leads to like this natural progression of what happens when we have true digital abundance. So everything on a screen, whether it be essays, books, movies, Netflix series can just be generated by an AI in an instant, the new space industry being developed. Uh, what I'm really most excited about is these industries, these technologies and seeing where they get built, who's building them and what the products really look like. And also finding ways to potentially bet on those in the future. Seems like your call with Amit Gupta really hit you hard and everything can be automated. And you mentioned many things, but you forget to say podcasting. So we'll keep that for us. Is that correct? <laughs> and we'll let the writers, the Netflix, everything to be automated. Oh, I use Descript. I haven't had the founder on the show yet, but I would love to. And Descript has uh, something called Overdub, where I can type in what I want to say, and Descript will have an AI version of me in my voice read it. It's not quite there yet, but they're getting better. They just released a new patch for them yesterday. So between uh, Amit Gupta's company, Pseudorite, writing the text and then having Overdub generated in my voice... Uh, yeah, I may not have to actually do any podcasts in the future. I can just give it a topic and release podcasts completely AI generated. At least uh, if you reduce the editing, that would be great for all of us. Yeah. The challenge is that the computers can't actually make anything valuable for people to make it actually rich and meaningful. That's what humans have to do. Well, Joe, I learned a lot. I didn't expect that you have all for Patrick and all the twists that you had and that you actually started the podcast first and put you on a pause and then decide to take it later. And I know that SVV has helped you somehow because a lot of the guests that you get are uh, sometimes you have somebody from SVV sitting with the two of you, but still you have done a terrific job. And I just really want to thank you for your time today, Joe. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, uh, the thing I realized about podcasts is people are shockingly open to coming on. And given I'm someone who relies on cold emails for people coming on my show, I would be terrible if I didn't also answer and come on other people's shows. If you like this conversation, please leave a comment and a rating wherever you get your podcast from that will help like-minded people to discover the show. If you or anyone you know has an inspiring story and would like to be featured in the show, or if you simply want to reach us directly, our email is hi at kinsuki.com, or you can hit me directly on Twitter at Alfonso underscore Comino. Thank you for listening. Adelante. <laughs>